Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Reweal as he continues his sermon series, Grace Upon Grace. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Exodus chapter 32. It'd be an understatement to say that our, our culture is rapidly changing today. One of the biggest changes that we're experiencing and we're watching just right before our eyes is the concept of honor in our culture and in our society. Throughout history, we've seen honor understood in in many different ways. Honor was bestowed on an individual based on nobility, either because of their family heritage or perhaps the actions in their life that they would do that were honorable. So in medieval times, a feudal lord was honored, he was owed honor simply because of his, his birth, his family line. Uh, somebody had done something in the past to bring them to a place of, of noble character, of, of nobility. Uh, in Japan, we have the samurai warrior. The history, the discipline, and the tradition was something that would bestow honor upon that family because of a long tradition and history of that. Not too long ago in the United States, very much we looked at uh, police officers, people serving in the military as a very honorable trade honorable thing to do with your life, to sacrifice and to give of yourself in that way. But today, because of the rise of of technology, industrialism, the growth of cities, we're seeing a drastically uh, different change in the way that we're approaching honor altogether. The families and the traditions that we once held to be honorable are no longer held that way, no longer recognized in the same way. Charles Taylor's a, a very famous philosopher. He wrote an essay, it's a, it's a tour de force. It's called the, the Politics of Recognition. And he talks about the shift that we're experiencing in terms of, of honor. He pointed out two things that have led to this change that we're seeing. Number one is the collapse of social hierarchies. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know why or how this is happening. Perhaps the, uh, you know, we keep talking in our culture about uh, the middle class and the high class and kind of wanting to even things out a little bit more and get away from the, the lower, the middle, and the upper class divisions and pursue more equality. Maybe it's because of the failures of those in authority, the moral failures that we're seeing. Maybe it's because of uh, the Marxist lean that continue, continually is, is pervading us and, and prodding us in this culture as we get more and more progressive and uh, liberal as, in the culture as a whole. We don't know, but the collapse of so- social hierarchies is happening in the United States and really across the world. Uh, number two, there's an obsession with the sovereign self, individuality the people, the ability of, of people to dig down deep, to look within themselves, to find in themselves good feelings and, and to be happy with, themself, with themselves. Uh, Rousseau was one of the uh, main proponents of this a couple centuries ago. He redefined morality as, as fouling a voice of nature within us. Morality is not necessarily right and wrong anymore today. If, if you ask a, a millennial or a teenager, what's right and wrong between two different things, they find it very hard to cast the black and white colors on decisions that once upon a time we would say, this is easy. This is a good moral decision to make. No other person has the right to tell you what's honorable anymore. 
Uh, you do you, Brad. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do me. You do you. I'm gonna do me and everything's gonna be fine. And that's where we stand. Today there's no more right and wrong lifestyles, which means there's also no honorable and dishonorable. It's simply more important to be true to yourself. That's what the pundits will say than to hold on to any ancient, traditional, or, or even outdated honor codes. And Taylor suggests that our culture and society has completely replaced honor with a new modern understanding of dignity. No longer do we have honor codes, but we do have personal dignity, and that's completely different. It's been replacing it. Under this notion in politics, we no longer talk about honor in politics. We talk about equality and the dignity of all citizens. In ethics, like beauty, it's, it's now reduced to the eye of the beholder instead of being firm this way or that way. Carl Truman wrote a landmark book recently, just last year, I believe it came out, called The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self, or The Rise of the Modern Self, I believe it is. And he says this, this, this is worth noting as we kind of summarize this trend in what's happening. So the net result of the collapse of traditional hierarchies is that notions of honor no longer shape the pattern of social engagement and therefore of recognition in today's society. That role is now being played by the notion of dignity with each and every human being possesses, not by virtue of their social status, but simply by being human. And there's, there's a major problem with this, if you guys are following me and if you're understanding what's going on in the society and the culture, uh, doing away with honor in a culture is in effect an anti-culture. If the culture and the society no longer esteem actions and behaviors that are honorable, you no longer have a culture in and of itself. There's nothing that's gonna bring you together to, to understand and to practice something that is collectively agreed upon as moral or immoral, as honorable or dishonorable. In other words, if a culture isn't explicitly defining what is honorable, what seems honorable will be adopted unconsciously. It'll be absorbed in one way or another. Unless you explicitly define the actions and the characteristics of honor, you will implicitly practice that which seems honorable maybe to Chad, but doesn't seem honorable perhaps to me. In other words, the culture will shape your worldview if you don't. If you don't actively promote things that will define a culture, you will passively fall into the culture that exists, whatever that might be. Here's why I want to start out this way, and this is a politics of recognition is what we're talking about. All human beings have a deeply rooted desire to be recognized, to be considered as valuable, to be accepted, or even to belong. 50 years ago, we would have said that all people have a desire to be honorable, to, to be a person of honor within the culture. Uh, today, we say all, peacher, all people have a desire to be dignified or to receive a a title of, of dignity. This is a perennial human need. We want to matter. We want to be known. We want not to be marginalized. And we want it so bad, in fact, that universally, we're redefining words and creating new categories so that we can feel better about ourselves in this way. 
And so, today, no one is honorable. Because if somebody is honorable, that means that somebody's not honorable. And we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to upset the apple cart and tell people that their actions are dishonorable. We need to protect our precious egos, our self-esteem, and our personal feelings. And I have, a, I have a really deep concern when it comes to this in our culture, in our society today, and really a personal fear. Because as we continue to teach in this, this sermon series on grace, this very short sermon series, just one more week, uh, we'll continue it for one more Sunday. I was texting with Michael Turner, uh, one of our guys is about to become a new member out here at TBC. And I really do believe that the biggest obstacle to grace, the biggest um, hurdle as a pastor and as, as a church, as we evangelize in this culture and in this world today, the biggest obstacle to the grace of God in people's life is for them to accept the fact that unbelievers are unworthy of the grace of God. They're undeserving of it. And their actions and their lifestyle are not honorable to God. One of the biggest obstacles that we will ever face when it comes to the, to the grace of God is telling people and helping them to understand that they can never earn it. There's no dignity that they have upon them, that they are worthy of God's grace. And so we are an egocentric, obsessed with self culture that fails to see the need for God's grace because there's nothing wrong with us. We all have dignity. We all have an equal dignity. And we're turning aside from these traditional categories that once uh, really got to the heartstrings of people in a different way. This next generation will struggle to see the amazing grace of God because they don't see a need for it. Uh, Jerry Bridges has an awesome thought. He talks about the grace of God. It goes something like this. Your worst days are never so bad that they are beyond the reach for God's grace. Your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need for it. If we can get down to that in the culture, grace will resonate. Grace will start to resonate in a much different way. If you, find, if you have your Bibles, I hope you found Exodus chapter 32. And I want to just paint, we're going to go through, this is going to be very quick through about three chapters in Exodus, a very important story in the Old Testament. Let me paint the context just a little bit for you. It's been three months since the Israelites, the Hebrews, have been redeemed from Egypt. They have gone from slavery in Egypt, they have gone through the Red Sea crossing, all of the conditions that they had, they were rescued and delivered by God in a miraculous way. They've gone through all of the plagues, and finally, three months later, they come to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up. He has spoken with God at the top of Mount Sinai. God gave him the law, the instructions for the tabernacle, and the people actually enter into a blood covenant with God at the base of the mountain. Exodus chapter 24, blood is sprinkled upon them, the terms and the conditions of the Mosaic covenant, the promise to God, and their end of the bargain, what they have to keep to contain these promises of God has been given to them, and they enter into the covenant. Moses now goes up on the mountain to receive the, the two tablets that God will engrave with the Ten Commandments on them. And of course, as Brad was reading, you'll know that he had to do this two times. The first time he goes up, they get the Ten Commandments, and he realizes the people of Israel are at their base. Uh, 
partying, worshiping golden calves. He shatters the tablets as he's coming down. So he's got to go back up again, and God will give him a second set of tablets, this time under the, uh, um, the foundation of grace and mercy. So look down at Exodus 32, and let's explain exactly what's, what's going on here. Verse 1, I'll read through the first six verses. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he's up there uh, 40 days and 40 nights. I'm not sure if he's alive anymore. They saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, and it's, it's not clear whether Aaron's in charge here or the people are in charge, uh, but it is, it is significant that the people, apart from Moses' leadership, are demanding things from Aaron. When the congregation, when the majority of people are involved in the spiritual leadership of a community, you will not have spiritual leadership. Uh, spiritual leadership, especially in the Old Testament, is always to the few and to the faithful. It's the 12 spies that went into the land, it's two of them that came out with a favorable report of trusting and, and faithfulness. Rarely will the majority have the opinion of godliness. Aaron comes along, here you go, you want a golden calf? I'll help, I'll help you make it, uh, pandering to the people in this context. People gathered themselves together and said, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, and, and just notice how quick this is. Take off the rings of gold, that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Later on, uh, Moses will ask Aaron, how did this happen? Why in the world do we have a golden calf? And Aaron will come back and say, look, all I did was throw some gold into a fire and out came this golden calf. It wasn't me, I promise. Here we see the truth is that he actually engraved it. He took time to form and fashion this object as a, as a god from Egypt that they had been influenced by. Uh, he received the gold from their hand, verse four, with a graving tool, he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, speaking of the calf. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And burnt offerings, those are, that's the mother of all offerings in the Old Testament. That's the, that's the offering that you give to God to say, I'm giving myself entirely to you on the altar because the whole thing was burnt up and given as a sacred aroma to God. They offer burnt offerings, they offer peace offerings to the golden calf, which is a fellowship community offering, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Number one in your outline, number one this morning, grace, why we need it. Why do we need grace? In verse, verse one of chapter 32, there's a very graphic scene unfolding. We're wondering if Moses had abandoned them, how the majority of people now turn to Aaron, but they, but they did. Was Moses alive? Was he dead? They don't know what's going on at the top of the mountain. All that they know is going on at the base. And they demand of Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. 
And that verb, to go before, whenever you see that verb connected with a preposition, it's a very technical term, all right? We would understand this, it's a collocation, we call it in Hebrew, when a, a preposition is attached to a certain verb, you can compare that to the other times it occurs in the Old Testament. And it means to lead into battle with an emphasis on protection from your enemies. Remember, we're roughly 90 days after the deliverance from Egypt. God had brought them to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was pursuing the Israel. They were sitting ducks out there. And God protected them. He delivered them like a military general. Just in, in chapter 15 of Exodus, they sang about the victory of God and how he led them in victory over Pharaoh's army. Very abruptly now, we are totally shifting gears and they worship God as they chose to instead of how he demanded. They created a God as a golden calf and then labeled that as the Lord. It's interesting that, that the object here is a, is a golden calf. That term actually for a golden calf indicates the strongest of the domesticated animals as it is fully grown and yet still young. Okay, so if you are serving a, a golden calf, you are worshiping the God of life, perhaps fertility in Egypt, and of raw strength and power. And of course, they would have got this idea for a golden calf from Egypt. Um, have you ever, you guys ever heard this term syncretism before? It's not that the Israelites were completely abandoning the one true God of heaven and earth. They just they wanted to keep him alongside of all these other gods that they had experienced in Egypt. And so their worship was syncretistic. It was, it was multifaceted, many gods, instead of just one true God. And at the end of this first paragraph here in verse six, Israel is fully engaged in pagan idol worship. Aaron had built an altar he prepared a feast, and he sacrifices to this golden calf. Verse six says, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Um, one of your translations will say that the people were having fun. The NIV translation says they were, um, it was revelry at the base of Mount Sinai. There's overturns of, of sexual debauchery with these terms. Later, when Moses comes down the mountain, he's gonna hear songs of shouting, singing, and dancing. All right, so whatever is happening at the base, this is, this is pagan worship at its core par excellence here from the people of Egypt, away from the God who had just redeemed them three months ago from Egypt. What makes this passage even more shocking than just the idolatry itself, though, is the timing of it. Okay, so in Hebrew narrative, we should be reading Exodus 32 as a simultaneous action is taking place. We've got Moses up on top of Mount Sinai worshiping the Lord. He's meeting with him in a pillar of cloud, and he's getting the law, and he's getting the Ten Commandments written on these tablets of stone. There's scenes that are happening at the top of the mountain with Moses and God, and that's where true worship is happening. And also, meanwhile, Exodus 32 is happening at the base of the mountain. And so we should, we should read Moses at the top of the mountain juxtaposed with the people of Israel and Aaron at the base of the mountain. Both scenes, worship is going on. At the top, there is true worship to the one true God of heaven. At the bottom, there is false worship to a pagan God that's influenced more by Egypt than it is by, by the law, by what Moses had given them. 
Moses is at the top of the mountain worshiping God. The people are at the bottom of the mountain worshiping the calf. And God was engraving those 10 commandments on those two tablets of stone. All right, so really in Old Testament, this is something that's just gonna, might blow your mind if it's the first time you've heard it. There really aren't 10 commandments in the law. There's 10 sayings or 10 words. Devarim is the word for matters or sayings. The first of the 10 is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There's no commandment there whatsoever. In fact, if you ask an orthodox, traditional Hebrew scholar, they will say that there's nine commandments. The very first of the commandments is what? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have what? No other gods before me. Moses goes up there to get the tablets written, the very first commandment, before he can get down 40 days later. He can't even get to the base before the Israelites are totally indulged in breaking the very first of the commandments, the very first of the, of the 10 sayings. And this is what he walks into. The question is, is this, why do we need grace? It's really easy to read this passage, look at Israel and say, these guys need grace. These are dirty idolaters, just 90 days after God's deliverance from Egypt, fully engaged in pagan practices and in pagan worship. Um, when I, uh, Brandy and I got three kids, our middle child, Ethan, is uh, 10 years old. He just turned double digits this week, all right? And so this, his birthday happened on Tuesday, Wednesday this week, and we do this thing, it's like a birthday week at our house, so all week long, it's Ethan's birthday, I don't know how this happens, but if you, if you do see Ethan, remind him that his birthday was Wednesday, not Sunday, all right, birthday's over, all that good, all that good stuff. Ethan's got, uh, we had really good friends in Kansas, one of them was a high school uh, kid that worked in our, our church there, just a really, became a really good friend, and a really good friend to our kids. And for his birthday one year, they, he gave them an old green stuffed animal of a massive alligator. It's like the size of him, right? And he, and he named this green alligator stuffed animal Greeny, and he just loved it. He took this animal with him wherever he went. He slept with it. If he went into another room of the house, he brought Greeny with him. If he went to somewhere in the car, Greeny was gonna be in the car. If he went to Grandma's house, Greeny's been to Alabama many times, Aunt Wendy's house. Greeny, this alligator goes everywhere with Ethan. Even so much that when he first started school, we had this really sweet lady that, that homeschooled him for his preschool in Kansas, and he, he was terrified of going to her house and just doing school for four or five hours a day. But it made everything better if he brought Greeny with him. And so we, the first pictures that we have of Ethan on his first days of preschool, he's holding on to this massive green alligator. And we realize that Greeny was a little too important in Ethan's life when we tried to take it away. The first time we said, you know what, Ethan, you really shouldn't take this green alligator with you, he was devastated. And it was like he, he didn't want to go where we were going because he didn't have his, remember Linus on the peanuts with his, uh, with his blanket? 
He always had that security blanket. Greeny was Ethan's security blanket, right? To understand idolatry and what's happening here in the Old Testament as we apply it to our lives, you really have to understand the nature of the human heart. And the best way I can explain this is by asking you a question. You guys probably heard me say this before. What thing do you have in your life? It's probably not a green alligator, but everybody has a greenie in their life. What thing do you have in your life that you hold on to and you cling to so tightly that if somebody took it away from you, life would no longer be worth living? What thing do you have in your life that you look for security, comfort, significance, and meaning? Perhaps it's not a a stuffed animal. Perhaps it's a bank account. Perhaps it's a career. Perhaps it's a relationship. Maybe you're in a, a dating relationship with somebody, and you can't imagine what would happen if that thing fell apart. Or maybe you so desperately want to be married or so desperately want to have kids, and God hasn't allowed you to go through that experience or have that experience. And so things aren't, aren't great, and, and you're experiencing just a, a horrific sadness because you don't have that thing. Listen, an idol is anything. It's not just golden calves that they're worshiping in the Old Testament. An idol is anything that impacts your heart so, so much and so strongly that if it is taken away, you get angry. You get really upset by it. Anything that is more fundamental to you than God for your happiness, meaning in life, or your identity is an idol. And Ezekiel 14 has this phrase, even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel uses this phrase, idols of the heart. John Calvin, the great reformers, has said that our hearts are idol factories. And here's why I said that. Because as human beings, always looking for someone or something in this world to give us our greatest satisfaction, our strongest desires, and to meet those things, we are always mass-producing idols. In your life, when you're 30 or 40, maybe it's your career. When you're 50 or 60, maybe it's your grandkids. I don't know. It seems to be something else, this thing or that thing, that we look to for our greatest need and our greatest significance in life. And if we have it, things are great. But the second it gets taken away, that's when our life begins to fall apart. That in and of itself, whatever it is that you have, is an idol and all of us have them. All of us need grace in our life because all of us have idols of the heart. Anything that you desire more than you desire God is an idol. And that's what the Israelites were facing. Number one, grace. Why we need it. We need it because apart from Christ, all of us are idolaters. And that's exactly what Romans 1 will tell you when you read the passage. Number two, how do we get it? How do we get the grace of God that we need so desperately? Now, when the Israelites committed idolatry, they broke the very first command, you shall have no other gods before me. They also broke the most important command, which is Deuteronomy chapter six. When Jesus is tested by the lawyer, they ask him, what is the most important law in all of the commandments? What is the most important commandment in all of the law of the Old Testament? Remember what he said. He said this, the most important is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They broke the most important commandment. They no longer loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Now, someone, something else has taken the place of God, has become more important to them, or just as important to them, as God, this golden calf. And the punishment for idolatry, both in the Old Testament and the New, is death. Idol worshipers, if God is just, if he is good, he will punish the idol worshiper with death. Why? Because they're giving love to someone other than the person that created them. And God is a jealous God. He is an all-consuming fire. Right? So Romans 1 says that the idolater will eventually be given over to their sin. So God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. And finally, to a depraved mind in that context. Revelation 21 verse 8, the place for the idolater, just like the, um, the coward the liar, the wicked, and the evil person is in the lake of fire that burns eternally, right? So when the people commit idolatry, because God is just, God is ready to kill them. His law demands justice, and justice for the punishment of idolatry was death. In chapter 32 here, Moses, it's an interesting thing. He says, I'm ready to kill the Israelites. Moses does something akin to what Abraham did in Genesis, when he prayed for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember? What if there's 50 righteous people? Are you still going to destroy the city on behalf of the 50 righteous? And he talks God down, finally gets him to the place where he's like, if there's 10 righteous people, thinking of Lot and his family members, there at least would be 10 there. Very similar, similar thing happens here in Exodus 32. Moses begins to reason with God and plead with him not to destroy the Israelites. After all, they are his people. God cannot figure out what to do with them. He begins to listen to Moses. He begins to, to think differently about what he's going to do with his people. Turn over to chapter 33 and look at verse 1. Finally, chapter Exodus 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. Now, we would think that the pronouns would be God's people. God's saying, no, Moses, this is your people. You can have them. I don't want them anymore. I don't put up well with dirty, filthy idolaters, right? Depart from here, go up to the land of Egypt, and I will give this land to them. I will send an angel before you, I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, it's, it's interesting how the people are going to respond to this. One of my favorite movies is, is The Patriot. Have you guys seen Mel Gibson's The Patriot? It's, a, it's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, and it, picks, it depicts the role that the... Uh, American militia played in the Revolutionary War. The really good, good story about how we gained our independence from Great Britain. There's a scene towards the end of, of the Patriot where there's going to be a de decisive battle in the Revolutionary War. The militiamen know it well. Cornwallis and his troops know it well. 
everybody knows that this battle that's about to ensue could basically paint the picture or set the tone for the rest of the entire war. And they go out, and typically the militia played an instrumental part in the, in the Revolutionary War. Typically, they weren't men in uniform. They were just a bunch of farmers. It's kind of like uh, Teddy Roosevelt's cavalry, the uh, Rough Riders. These guys were just rough and tough guys living off the land that had arms to defend themselves against faulty authorities, against uh, tyranny from overseas. And so they band together, and typically, again, these, these group of guys, they, they don't dress for battle. They dress as farmers, and they bring their guns and their weapons that they have with them. But before this battle, this decisive battle, there's a, there's a French major that comes out. You remember this scene? And he comes out ready for battle like he has never been before. He's got the full garb. He's got his his army pants, he's got his coat on, he's got his sword strapped to his side, and he is fixing his hat. And Benjamin Martin, the character played by Mel Gibson, kind of looks over at this French guy who's about, he's about to go to battle with him. He's fighting together as, as allies. And he's raising his eyebrows like, look, man, we haven't dressed this way for any battle up until this point. Remember what the French guy said? Just looked at him. And this French major comes in and he, and he says, look, if I'm going to die, at least I'm going to look good when I die. And they go off to battle. It's just a really funny scene. What happened in the Patriot is nothing like what happens here in Exodus 33. The people's heart is wrenched because God has told them, I can't be with you. My presence would consume you on the way. I am too holy. I can't even go with you. And the people can't stand it. And they finally, they see the gravity of their sin and their idolatry. Look down at verse four. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Your text there might say jewelry in this context. No one put on their jewelry, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments that I might know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And that text goes all the way through the next 40 years in the wilderness. Israelites will never put on jewelry like they once did before this incident of the golden calf. What's going on here? Why are they taking off their jewelry? In the ancient Near East, this would have been a, a very typical sign of mourning and loss. The people are mournful, they are grieving their sin. And so what they do is they take off everything that would show that they are happy or excited about what's about to take place, and they dress for it. Instead, they present themselves to God with absolutely nothing. Plain Jane, this is very similar to what we do at funerals. When we wear black clothing, just something that's very plain because our hearts are grieving and they are wrenched. Sometimes a person in the Old Testament wears sackcloth, a very cheap garment to show that they are mourning. Other times you'll see the use of ashes and dust sprinkled on the head to show that uh, we are dirty and filthy before God. And we are mourning this status. There is nothing associated with cheerfulness that could be seen from the people. Their appearance, again, is plain. And Israel metaphorically is, is communicating to God that there is no honor 
among them. There is no dignity that they have before God. Everything is laid bare before him. They're holding on to nothing because they have nothing. And their sin has gripped their hearts. In other, other words, when Israel strips off all of their clothing, they strip themselves bare before God. And they say to him, you do to us what seems good to you. We have nothing to hold on to. And we are all guilty of sin. This is a, this is a repentant heart from the people of Israel. This is them finally coming back to God and saying, we have sinned. We have done the dishonorable thing in your sight. We plead for mercy. We plead for grace. Many people have a, have a notion that Christianity is, is a religion that will help you feel better about yourself. Um, Christianity is, is something that we go to for, like we would go to for a life coach to get through a downtime in our life. This passage in Exodus tells us many things about Christianity. It tells us that Christianity is not primarily about advice. It's not just giving good ideas to people to help them get through life. It's not merely about self-improvement. Christianity is not turning over a new leaf. It's not adopting a new ethic whatsoever. There's nothing that Israelites can do that will help them feel better about themselves and earn the grace of God and the forgiveness of God in this context. Before being a, a message of joy and life, Christianity is absolutely a message of death and destruction to sinners before a holy God. In, in 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was asked why he thought his country had experienced all the, the horrors of Soviet communism. And his reply was very simple. He said this, the men had forgotten God. That's why all this has happened to our country. That statement is exactly the statement of what's going on in Israel. Israel had forgotten God. They started worshiping golden calves. Their hearts were gripped, they repented of that sin, and they asked God for mercy and forgiveness. Christianity is a story that you need to be saved, and that you cannot do the slightest thing to save yourself. All you can do is cast yourself wholly and completely before a God in repentance and trusting that his grace and forgiveness will meet you at your greatest point of need. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. Israel is pleading for grace and, compassionate, and compassion from God. Number three, in your outline very quickly, we'll wrap it up. Who is the source of grace? Uh, look down at your, your Bibles at verse 18. We're gonna skip over some, some sections here. Not all this is chronological. In Exodus 32 through 34, it's a, a, broad, a broad chronology when you read it, but there's some confusing aspects of it when you read it holistically. Verse 18 as we get closer to chapter 34 here, Moses said to God, please show me your mercy. Exodus 33, verse 18. Please show me your mercy. And he said, this is God's here speaking to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand 
on the rock or perhaps even in the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Because God is so holy and the Israelites were so sinful, there is no way that they can even look upon God and live. All they, des- all they deserved was death and destruction. In verse 19, God says this. I'm gonna make it possible for you, Moses, to look upon me. And here's how it's gonna happen so that it doesn't kill you in the process. I'm gonna put you in the cleft of a rock for protection. I'm gonna put my my hand in front of your eyes so you're not gonna see me. Until I've walked past, then you will see my back. But you will not see me because no man can see me and live. Now, remember, we're in the context of the law in the Old Testament here, right? God is a just God. He must deal with his people in justice. He must keep the law that he has given to the people. And the law said to Moses, as well as all the other idolaters at the base of the mountain, number one, you can't see me and live. Number two, the punishment for idolatry is death. And here, God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. That's that's an interesting phrase, right? If God was going to make all of his goodness pass before Moses, why would he have to be in the cleft of the rock? If God's goodness was going to show up to him at that moment, why would he have to be veiled by the hand of the Lord? If God's goodness is related to his kindness, there would be no need for any of that. And yet, in God's goodness, we still need the protection from the presence of the Lord. Um, C.S. Lewis is is one of my favorite apologists, theologians. There is no one better on the goodness of God than C.S. Lewis in mere Christianity. And I wanna read you just a little bit of this. Lewis says this, the law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There's nothing indulgent about the law, Lewis said. It's hard as nails. It tells you the straight thing to do and it doesn't seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the law, then he is not good. You might even say if God is like like the law, he gives the people what they deserve. He is not soft. He is not good in the sense that we think of his goodness. And he says this. He says, the trouble is that one part of you is on his side, God's side. And we really agree with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception for you this one time to let you off. But you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests all sorts of sinful behavior, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. And this is the terrible fix we are in. If God is good as part of being God's justice, in order to meet that goodness and meet that standard of justice and righteousness, 
he has to dole out the consequences. He has to act. And here's what Lewis says at the close of the chapter. He says, all I am doing is wanting you to, to face the facts of Christianity. And he says, they're terrible facts. So I quite agree that the Christian religion is in the long run a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it doesn't begin in comfort. It begins in dismay. It begins in discomfort. Comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you might find comfort in the end. But if you look only for comfort, you will get neither truth nor comfort. Just soft soap and wishful thinking that God might make a pass for you. God's, God's goodness is about to walk before Moses in sinful Israel. He protects him in the cleft of the rock. And in his goodness, he also shows his love, his grace, his benevolence, and his mercy. When theologians talk about the character of God, typically they divide God's character into two categories. There's the communicable attributes and there's those th things that are incommunicable. We might say there's the greatness of God and then there's the goodness of God. In the greatness of God, the incommunicable attributes are the things we don't, we can't even comprehend. His sovereignty, his infinity, uh, his omnipresence, his omniscience. We don't have anything else in our world that is all-knowing. We just kind of assume that, that God is like that as he has declared himself to be. And so in his greatness, if all we knew of God was just his great attributes, he may in fact be in, in amoral or exercise his greatness capriciously because he is a sovereign God. And we should expect nothing from God but power, force, justice, and even wrath. But because God is good, as well as great, he can be trusted and he can be loved. Because he is sovereign as well as gracious and merciful, we can trust him. And we know that he will love us. When theologians study God's goodness, typically it falls under the category of God's love, along with his benevolence, his mercy, and his grace. And here's what the grace of God is, if you need a definition. The fact that God is gracious means that he deals with his people not on the basis of their merit or worthiness, what they deserve, but simply according to their need. God deals with his people not on the basis of their merit or worthiness or what they deserve, but simply according to their need and shows them grace when they deserve nothing but justice and wrath. Here's how the passage goes. Moses goes into the cleft of the rock. God covers his face with his hand. He passes by before him. All they see is his back. Then we get to chapter 34. As Brad read, the Lord passes by Moses. What's the, what's the one thing in this text that we wish Moses would have told us that's not in there? When you read Exodus 34, God is passing by, we would say walking, in front of Moses. What's not there that we wish was there? What's the question we all have? What, do you, what did he look like? There's, there's no description. Moses records nothing 
of what he saw. All the text tells us is what he heard. And what does it say? The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, merciful, a God of abounding and loving kindness, forgiving the inequity of his people, visiting the inequity of his people to the third and fourth generation. He is just, but he is merciful, and he is kind, and he is gracious. And that's how he reveals himself to us. Moses saw nothing of God but his back. In the New Testament, John says something really interesting in chapter one. He says, nobody has seen God at any time, because why? If they did, they'd be dead. But Jesus has explained him. Jesus has shown us what God looks like. And it's in Jesus that we find grace and mercy and a perfect depiction of what's written for us in Exodus 34. Gracious, compassionate, merciful, and forgiving. This is the revelation that we have of God. This is the grace of God that we hold on to so tightly. Uh, I've asked Ryan and, and Hannah to come back up this morning. We're going to close with a, with a song about the grace of God, a, a song that you guys probably know extremely well um, as they're coming up and getting ready to, to play. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there's, there's no way that we can look at this passage of, of the golden calf and Moses in the cleft of the rock and do any sort of justice to it in the short amount of time that we've had. Lord, but I pray that um, the things that have been said today are true to your word, that even in the account of what we know about from Exodus, the truth of God's forgiveness, his grace, and his compassion to people who are so ill-deserving to idol worshipers will lay heavy upon each of our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are merciful to us. You give to us what we do not deserve. You give us yourself. You give us yourself in grace. We pray that our lives would be uh, lives that showcase that grace to others who need it so desperately and to our hearts who need it on a daily basis. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.